13, verses 8 through 14. Romans 13, 8 through 14 is what we're going to be looking at together. Romans chapter 13, verses 8, th- 8 through 14. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I feel this responsibility that all pastors feel on Super Bowl Sunday to like, have a really catchy football joke or illustration. But I, you know me, especially if you've been here for a while, you know I don't know anything about it. So just insert now, like maybe the production team can insert obligatory football joke right here. And then I've checked the box on Super Bowl Sunday. And now I'm through it. Can, we, can I do that? Is that okay? Perfect. Thank you. Okay, so we've moved through the Super Bowl joke. And now we're into Romans 13, uh, verses 8 through 14. Now, this spring, we are concluding three years in the book of Romans. Now, Romans is a missionary letter. It's a missionary letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. Its audience is a congregation made up of Jewish and Gentile Christians who are experiencing some level of division as a result of the diversity that exists in their church. We don't know all that's happening at the church in Rome, but we know it's made up of both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, and they're trying to figure things out. They're trying to figure things out. Now, Paul, the one who's writing the letter, has never been to the church in Rome, but they certainly know him by way of reputation. Now, we're 13 chapters in, and I can't summarize all 12 chapters before we jump in today, but let me give you the headline. The headline, Romans is about the gospel. Romans is about the gospel, and the gospel is this. It's the good news that God saves and God reigns. The gospel is the good news that God saves and God reigns. It's not just the good news that God has salvation. It's also the good news that God has a kingdom. God has a kingdom. The gospel is all about the good news that God saves his people and God is establishing his kingdom. Now, Romans 1 through 11 is asking the question, what is the gospel? And we've spent about two and a half years in Romans 1 through 11. But this past fall, we turned our attention to Romans 12. And now we're looking at the last four chapters, Romans 13 through 16. And this is focused on the question, what is the impact of the gospel? If the gospel is the good news that God saves and God reigns, then what is the practical impact to our ordinary normal lives of the gospel of Jesus? Now, Romans 12 showed us that the impact is on us, that it transforms our moral life, right? The gospel is the good news that God takes dead people and he makes them alive in Jesus. And having made us alive in Romans 12, he shows us how to live. He shows us what it means to be virtuous, to be good people. Now, you might think, well, I thought Christianity wasn't about bad people becoming good people. No, it's about dead people being made alive in Jesus. But after being made alive in Jesus, the gospel transforms our moral life. It does transform us from people who do bad to people who do good. Romans 12 is showing us that one of the practical impacts of the gospel is that it transforms how we live. It transforms how we live. And in Romans 13, that impact is traced not just from the level of the individual, but to the world around us. Romans 13 verses 1 through 7, it deals with how the gospel reshapes the way we participate in government, the way we submit to civil or governing authorities. 
And so if you want to listen to that, if you missed that last week, especially in a 2024 election year, it might be valuable if you're interested in how the gospel reshapes the way we participate in politics to go back and listen to that. But after verses 1 through 7, Paul shifts the focus in verses 8 through 14 to not just answering the question, how do we participate in a world government? How do we participate in the politics of our age? How do we participate and submit to the governing authorities? But how do we follow Jesus in an evil age? That's what verses 8 through 14 are about. How do we follow Jesus in an evil age? The gospel impacts our ordinary lives. It switches our fundamental allegiance to King Jesus. And now that we have a new fundamental loyalty and allegiance to King Jesus, now that we are citizens of the kingdom of God, we have to ask, how do we practice the way of Jesus in the midst of a wicked culture and a wicked age? Now, we aren't the first to have to consider this question. The Christians in Rome were wondering this as Paul writes this letter. All throughout the history of the church, Christians across language groups, across places, people of all different shapes and sizes, cultural backgrounds, times and places have had to ask the question, how do we follow Jesus in a wicked age? So what I'm about to tell you and share with you, it was relevant 2,000 years ago. It's relevant now because this world, until Christ returns, is marked by a mixture of beauty and brokenness. All of our cultures, all places, in all times, in all peoples are impacted by the impacts of sin, by wickedness, by evil, by unrighteousness. And you may be thinking, Pastor, this sounds like you're one of those old school preachers who's about to tell me that everything around me is broken and it's really challenging to stay on the narrow way and follow Jesus. Yes, that is what I'm about to tell you. Old school or not, that's what I'm going to do. I'm gonna tell you this. Now, let me just give you some facts because we're gonna turn our attention to verses eight through 14, but you might be thinking, I'm not convinced that maybe things around us are as bad as it sounds like you're suggesting they are. Let me just give you some data points real quick, okay? Depression, anxiety diagnoses are up by every measurement that matters, every single one. We have a new drug, drug crisis emerging as fentanyl usage, addiction, and deaths are increasing Pornography usage is rampant and emerging. AI and VR technologies make the already poisonous drug more addicting, more alluring, more accessible. Violent crime is up. Consumer debt is up. Marriage and birth rates are down. Okay? I'm just talking about life in the global West right now. And you might think, well, yeah, but none of that's really present in our community. Well, you're wrong. But let me bring it a little bit closer to home for us. I wonder how many of us would be comfortable with making our browser histories publicly available, even those incognito tabs. I wonder how many are really being honest with their spouses in the homes across Richardson. I wonder how many are wondering if maybe honoring the Lord's Day in the face of club sports for kids is really not that big of a deal. I wonder how many times the glass of wine to unwind from the day really becomes the glasses of wine to numb the pain. I wonder how often the prescriptions are being used far beyond what they were originally prescribed for. 
This is our community. This is our neighborhood. This is the place we live in. We're not immune from the temptations of this world. I am not immune from the temptations of this world. You are not immune from them. We have to ask ourselves if we want to follow Jesus in a place in which there is great temptation to not do so, how? How do we do that? It's honest to ask that question. It can feel demoralizing. It can feel disorienting to try and consider how do we follow Jesus in the twilight of an age? How do we follow Jesus in a wicked time? How do we follow Jesus in a culture of anxiety? Little did the church in Rome know that that was their calling as well, to practice the way of Jesus, to live out the truth of the gospel in the midst of a crumbling empire. So how does Paul instruct the church in Romans 13, verses 8 through 14? Well, this is what he says. Besides this, you know the time. Excuse me, I I went too far. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Paul points them towards three realities in these verses. And I'll give them to you right now. If you're type A and you want these notes down, here are the points. The first one, Paul points them to the way of love. The way of love, he points them to the way of love. And then he tells them about the coming day. There's a day that is coming, and Paul draws their attention to this coming day. And then the last thing, he shows them the act of consecration. He shows them the act of consecration. The way of love, Paul begins in verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled this Love has fulfilled the law. This call here to love has been shaped already by what Paul has already said about love in Romans 12. This love isn't just any kind of love, it's agape love. That's the Greek word for love that's used here, agape. Agape is God's love that God's people are called to imitate. That's what, God, that's what love is. That's what true Christian love is. It's agape love. It's God-shaped love that shapes God's people to then love others that way. That's what agape love is. It's the most common word used for love in the New Testament. We ran across it in Romans 12 when Paul said, let love be genuine, love one another. See, agape love is God-defined love. I know that we're in a cultural moment where love is a great word to say, but a very hard word to define. But the truth of the matter is, the Scripture gives us a very clear picture of what love is. It is what God says is good and beautiful and true and right. 
It's this love that we're called to share and to show, to demonstrate. We're, we're called to show this love to God in worship. We're called to show this love to the people around us in compassion and, and, and mercy and, and grace and truth. We're called to show this love to the world, this agape love. It's not merely the love of affirmation, right? The love of affirmation is a false love and that it is not a truth-telling love. But agape love calls a thing what it is so that it can begin to address it directly, not indirectly. This love is agape love. It is a truth-telling love. It is a holy love. It is marked by the character of God. It is marked by all of the virtues that Paul celebrated in Romans 12. It is a holy love. And Paul is saying, if you want to follow Jesus in a wicked age, practice the way of love. Practice the way of love of agape, practice the way of truth-telling love, of holy love. You see, because of God's love, all of our failures and sins can be forgiven in Jesus because of the great love that God has for us. But not only all of the ways that we've sinned against God, but because of our sins against each other and against one another, all failures against another person begin with a failure to practice a holy love. Every sin that we commit against one another, every way we wrong one another, every way that we hurt each other really begins with a failure to demonstrate the holy love of God to one another. And that's what Paul provides in this list in verses 9 through 10. He says, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. You see, remember that Paul is writing to a church of both Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. And these Jewish Christians, they have an ancient source of instruction called the Ten Commandments. We receive this as a part of our heritage in Christ. And Paul is referencing these Ten Commandments, which would be for them the absolute pinnacle of God's law, the clearest presentation of God's moral instruction to them. And what does he say? All of these commandments are grounded in your love for another, and your love for your neighbor, and your love for the people around you, right? You see, when we gossip, we don't love each other with our words. When we covet, we don't love each other with our desires. When we lie, we don't love each other with the truth. When we hate, we don't practice sacrificial love. When we resent, we don't practice forgiving love. When we bear false witness, we exchange love for a lie. See, love is a fulfillment of the law. It's a fulfillment of the law. This is Paul quoting Jesus. When Jesus says to those who ask about the law, he says, guess what? The law can be summed up in love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself, right? And so when we think about what it means to follow in the way of Jesus in the midst of a wicked and evil age, it begins with practicing the way of love with practicing the way of love because of the gospel, because God frees us up from the power of sin and the rule of the devil, we no longer have to live under the condemnation of the law, nor do we have to live as perpetual law breakers. We can practice what is the fulfillment of the law by demonstrating the way of love. Now, love sounds good, but real love, truth-telling love, sacrificial love is always costly. A God-shaped love is costly. And do you know how we know a God-shaped love is costly? 
How do we know that a God-shaped love is costly? Because when we look at the love of God on display, what do we see? We see the cross. We know that a God-shaped love is costly because the Son of God undertook the great cost of the cross because of love. Because of love. So if we think that there's a way of practicing the way of love or a God-shaped love that's not costly, well, we're wrong. There is no way to practice the love of God in a way that won't cost us something. It will always be sacrificial. And if you believe that you are loving someone else and yet it never seems to be sacrificial or costly, then the love that you're showing may not be God-shaped. It might be shaped by something else. It might be made in the image of another thing. To love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves is to practice agape love. It is always challenging, but it's particularly challenging when the gospel is rejected, when the gospel falls out of favor. There are times in the life of the world, and Paul is referencing this a little bit here, where it feels like um, the gospel is treasured in places and then where the gospel is dismissed in places. There are times in the life of the world when it feels like the gospel is treasured in places where it feels like the gospel is diminished or forgotten. And that just kind of ebbs and flows in the history of the world and the history of civilization. Paul is talking to a church in Rome that is really a pre-gospel society. Rome has not been marked by the spreading of the gospel in any significant way at present, though that will change. There will come a time, many hundreds of years after this church receives this letter in Rome, where Roman culture and society will be a place where at least on the surface level, in speech, they'll say the gospel is treasured. But at present, and their original reception of this letter, not that kind of place. The gospel isn't even known. It can't be treasured. It's not loved because it's, nobody's aware of it. It's still spreading. And so he tells them, you'll have to practice the way of love. Owe no one anything except to love each other. Except to love each other. To practice the way of love is always costly. It was costly then. It will be costly now. But the cost is worth it because of the next thing that Paul draws their attention to, which is the coming day. The coming day, look in verse 11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Paul is telling them the day of the Lord is approaching. The day of the Lord is approaching. This language is language that is eschatological. It's a big word. It just means it's looking towards the end of the world. It's looking towards the end of the world. Paul is saying the night is going away. The day is coming. There is a day of glory that is coming. This language is not rooted in what has already happened. It is rooted in what is going to happen. Paul is looking towards the future and saying just as sure and certain as Christ Jesus rose from the dead, he is coming back. And the language here is of urgency. There's an intensity here. Paul is saying, you know this, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. He's saying, Christ has come. Christ is coming again. He's pointing them forward. Now, you might think, well, man, it sounds like he was wrong because this was written about 2,000 years ago, and Christ has not yet come. So was Paul just a little ahead of his time? Was he maybe forecasting too quickly? Was he letting the cart lead the horse? I mean, where was Paul coming at? 
here in this passage, why would he tell them? It seems like the hour is at hand. It's coming right now. It's very similar to Jesus' language when he says, prepare yourself even now because the world is changing underneath your feet. Paul was not wrong here. We are not wrong to live with an urgency towards the end of the end of the story. A thousand years is as a day to the Lord. What has felt like many lifetimes and millennia to us is but a vapor in light of eternity. And the reality is, is all throughout the Bible, we are hearing language directed towards God's people to look towards the future and to live as if that coming day could be any moment now. An awareness of the urgency and intensity of the Christian life is rooted in this call that the Lord is coming again. And it is this hope that characterizes the sacrificial love and life of Christians today. There really is a reason to be urgent about the things of the Lord and it's because the Lord has come and the Lord is coming again. I know it feels like, well, when? I don't know. Where? I don't know. What time? Not a clue. The New Testament is clear. I'm not gonna get up here and tell you, hey, let me show you how to read the tea leaves and watch for these things in the news. Listen, anybody who sells you that is selling you an illusion. But the New Testament is clear. We are to live as if that day could be any day from now until it happens. And this is what Paul was saying 2,000 years ago to the church in Rome. He was saying, this Roman Empire that you see, this empire, it's temporary. This civilization is temporary, but God's kingdom is forever. And this call leads us to two responses. Two responses, hopeful honesty and eager expectancy. The coming day is to lead us to two responses, hopeful honesty and eager expectancy. Hopeful honesty, to be willing to acknowledge the darkness in the world around us without giving in to pessimism or cynicism. Now, and pessimism and cynicism are so easy to give ourselves over to because we look at the state of the world, it seems like it's getting worse, and it's easy for us to go, it's just gonna keep getting worse. I mean, does anybody else feel cynical? Does anybody else feel pessimistic? I, I, I think I'd almost, I'm not supposed to tell you I would judge you, but I think if, if you said, no, I, I'm really, gosh, I'm incredibly optimistic about the state of the world, I think I'd be like, really? Like, I, I think I'd doubt you at the very least, right? I think it'd be hard for me to accept that because I think it is easy to just feel like, ugh, more of this, this again, this kind of really soul-level pessimism. And yet the Christian lives with a hope, a hope that is not grounded in things being better next year than they were this year, a hope that is not grounded in the person we want winning, winning, a hope that is not grounded in the markets changing for the better, a hope that is not grounded on us getting what we want. The Christian hope is grounded in a future reality that the King of kings and Lord of lords is going to return and he is going to make all the wrong things right and he's gonna make all the sad things come untrue. The thing that keeps it from naivety, the thing that keeps it from silliness is that it's a hopeful honesty. It's a willingness to go, this is what Christ is going to do. I am hopeful in this day, but I'm willing to acknowledge that right now, 
it doesn't look like it. And a willingness to call what's broken, broken. A willingness to call what's evil, evil. A willingness to call what's dark, dark. And then to rush headlong into them with the love of Christ. This hopeful honesty is also accompanied by an eager expectancy. An eager expectancy, looking forward because the day of the Lord is approaching. Christians are people who are marked by an urgency to bring the gospel to the lost and dark places of this world because the time between now and the end of the world is closing. It's closing. The day of invitation will see an end. This moment, this window that we're in is a time that will be summed up and fulfilled. And when it is, there will be no more opportunity to proclaim Christ is Lord. That time of invitation will be over. So as we think about our resolution towards evangelism this year, one of the reasons why there should be an an urgency to our gospel witness is because there is a day coming when the door is shut. It's shut. There is a day coming when Christ's kingdom comes in fullness and the time of invitation is over. And we have the joy and the responsibility of living in that age between, of being both those who receive the gospel and those who relay the gospel to the world and invite them to the same table that we have been invited to. There is a day coming when this season in the life of the world, and the life of God's kingdom will be brought to its conclusion and it should lead us to a hopeful honesty and it should lead us to an eager expectancy for the day of the Lord that we live at the edge of the long, long night. But dawn is going to break. Dawn is gonna break on what has been a long night in the life of the world and with it, the glory of Christ arriving globally, historically, cosmically, changing everything. Changing everything. I know this can feel so far. It can feel so abstract. It can feel so conceptual. And yet every time we gather, we step into a place and a time and a space where we are reminded that it is this that is the reality of the world. That this is the reality of God's kingdom. And that we go out into the world as those who are ambassadors to come and to gather in the temple of the Lord. To come and to feast at the Lord's table. That there is grace and mercy and love abounding. And that our king's rooms are never filled. That there is always space in the family of God. There's always space in the household of God. And yet the night is far gone. The day is at hand. We are to live with a hopeful honesty and an eager expectancy about the coming day. The last way the gospel reshapes the way we live in this world in the midst of a wicked age is in verses 12 through following. Look at the last part here. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So, so now he's giving you now what we're gonna be called to do. So then let us cast off the works of darkness, put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The last call here is to the act of consecration. 
The last call here is to the act of consecration. What does that mean? It means to spiritually prepare ourselves to encounter God. That's what consecration is. It's to spiritually prepare yourself to encounter God. We will all encounter God. All of us, everyone who has ever lived, everyone who will ever live will encounter God. And the gospel is the good news that God has wiped the slate clean, given us a righteousness in Christ that we can never lose. And we are called in light of this to spiritually prepare ourselves to encounter God. If, if, if I had told you on Thursday, hey, we're gonna gather to worship on Sunday, I'm excited to gather with you in worship. And just as a note, we'll have a couple of lions in the sanctuary with us. If you would have come, you would have definitely come differently than you showed up today, right? Some of you are like, yeah, I'd be packing, you know? I'd be ready. I'd be ready to go. I'd be ready to fight a lion. You would have shown up differently. You maybe would have opened up those doors a little bit more carefully. Maybe you wouldn't have come at all. The reality is, is that when we know that we're going to encounter the presence of great power, we know things have to change, right? We know things have to change when we know we will encounter power unlike our own. And yet the reality is all of us are heading towards a day when we will encounter the holy power of God. Full stop. It is is coming, and our consciences bear witness to this. We know that day is coming. Even if they are the most callous hearts they can possibly be, there is something within us that knows when we are doing wrong, that knows when we are engaging in sin, that knows when we give in to temptation. Even in the most seared conscience, there is a knowledge that exists that say, I cannot be found out by God. I cannot be found out by God. Why? Why do we feel this? Why do we know this? It's because God is our author in creation and we know he gets to write the conclusion of the story. There is an impulse within us that says, I have to cover my tracks. I have to hide my sin. I have to put this in the closet. I have to do this when no one's watching. I have to make sure no one discovers. The reason we live with that impulse is because we know we are headed towards a day when all things will be made clear in the presence of a holy God. And what is our hope in the face of that reality? There is only one. And it is the good news that Christ is a substitute for sinners. Romans 13, eight through 14 is bad, bad, bad news if it's the only thing Paul has to say. Because what he's saying is, love like Jesus, don't succumb to worldliness and know that the day of the Lord is coming when your life will be judged. And those are all true things. It would be bad news if this is all Paul had to say, but it isn't. 
comes after 12 chapters of gospel truth. The grounds of this call is this. Christian, in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in light of the good news that God has secured your salvation in Jesus, everything in your life is now invited to be transformed by the gospel, knowing there is a coming day when your hopes will be realized. There is a coming day when your sacrifices will be rewarded. There is a coming day when all that is wrong with the world will be made right. Look for that day because it is coming. That is the good news for the Christian. And the invitation for you, the invitation for some of you who have played religious games, the invitation for you who have kept your mask up before God thinking you will fool him in the end, the invitation for you who hide behind fig leaves and hide behind trees, the invitation for you that are always having to clear the history, the invitation for you who feel like if everything was exposed, all you would get is shame, is to believe there is something better. That the day of the Lord is coming. And that between now and then God is inviting you. You who feel like God wants nothing to do with you. That God has come to seek and save the lost. And that you have a place in his kingdom. In his presence. Because of the good news of Jesus Christ. Because of his grace and his love. And his righteousness and his faithfulness to his covenant promises. God is inviting us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. To receive his righteousness. So that we will no longer be marked by who we once were, but we will be marked by Christ who has always been faithful, who has always been righteous, who has always been holy. That's the gospel. It's good news for the Christian as the grounds for our obedience, and it's good news for you who have not yet placed your faith in Jesus because it is the grounds of your salvation. That is what Paul is telling us here, that the day of the Lord is coming and everything will change in glory. It is coming for you. It is coming for me. It is sure and certain as Christ's resurrection. Let us look towards the day of the Lord. Let us spiritually prepare ourselves to encounter God. And let us rest in the grounds of the gospel that Jesus Christ has secured for us. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you, God, for your mercy and grace in Jesus. God, we confess and acknowledge that while we were at once far from you, strangers and aliens to you, that you have made us sons and daughters of God because of what you have done for us in Christ. We ask you, Lord, that for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, that you would strengthen our allegiance to you, that even in the midst of a wicked age and a crumbling empire, that we might practice the way of Jesus in faithfulness and in hope of a coming day. God, and I pray for those among us who feel like the things of Christ are far from them, would you bring it near to their hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. We love you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.